in the building development process, who is there who cares what it costs? You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Everything on track and moving ahead? I'm well. Still stuck in stage four lockdowns in Melbourne. We're more than a month in now, with a few weeks still to go. It's actually been a bit of a roller coaster in terms of the emotions that you go through from day to day. Some days are fine, others are frustrating, and then there's everything else in between. But overall, I'm doing fine. Work has continued on my townhouse project, thankfully, with site cuts just about done and some retaining walls and new fence being installed along one boundary. We've had quite a bit of rain in Melbourne lately, so that has caused some delays and issues with boggy conditions. We're probably about two weeks behind schedule, I reckon, but I'm sure we can make that up as we go along. On my other project, it looks like we've had a good outcome with the council over the issue of the alignment of the new crossover. You may recall I mentioned that council wanted a long, windy crossover that was about 70 metres long, cutting across the front of the neighbouring block, and was, in my opinion, an unnecessary path when a fairly straight crossover would be a far safer and better outcome for the future residents. After six months of discussions, I've been advised that Council will accept the shorter crossover alignment, which is a great result all round, I think. Don't forget, if you are interested in learning how to develop safely and profitably, then we have the mentoring program that's available to guide you through the developing process and teach you everything you need to know to become a successful property developer. We've had a couple of people get started in the past few weeks, so it's exciting to see people taking charge of their futures and investing in themselves. If you're interested in finding out more, then email me, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I'll send you some information on the program. Okay, on to today's guest, former Victorian State Premier, Ted Ballew. I'm very excited to bring this conversation to you because I think it's quite a thought-provoking and fascinating discussion about the broader picture of property developing. Now, this is not a uniquely Victorian story. I think the topics we cover are relevant in most areas, and I'm sure they will be familiar to most property developers. Ted is a trained architect turned politician who was Premier of Victoria from 2010 to 2013. His family also has a long connection to the real estate industry across Victoria. While in opposition, Ted was, among other things, the Shadow Minister for Planning. So he understands the issues and challenges that relate to property developing coupled with his professional training in architecture. So I think Ted brings a unique perspective to the table in terms of the wider social, political environment in which planning occurs, and then the practical aspects of understanding the developing process. He also has a unique insight into what it's like balancing the competing interests on all sides of planning and developing when you are the government of the day. During the conversation, we cover some very interesting ground, including why construction costs continue to rise what's wrong with the planning process, and the ongoing importance of understanding your local market. Keep an ear out for Ted describing the slow decay of the planning process and the impact that has on the confidence that all parties have in the system. Now, the audio of this recording is not as great as I would like it to be, but stick with it as there is some real gold in this conversation. I kicked off the chat by asking Ted what food he would eat until he was sick, and it certainly surprised me. Uh, well, that's, a, that's easy. Um, 
rib up and cast it on the wing at Geelong. I've I've long described that as the uh, appropriate ending, just uh, prop me up on the wing at Geelong, watching the cats and feed me rib up and cast it until I'm expired. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you wouldn't have been watching much of the cats out on the wing uh, this year and they're going all right, though, at the moment. My wife's a cats Uh, fan. Our seats are empty, but we're there in, there in spirit. Yeah, my wife's a Cats fan. Apparently they're my second favourite team. Yeah, most people's second favourite team, that's what gives it a strength. It's, the, it's the, really the only regional team and uh, it gives it a sort of a self-deprecating, uh, warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah, what's, what's your connection to the Cats, actually? How do you end up following Geelong? Uh, well, my great-grandfather and he... He first arrived in 1853 uh, and jumped ship um, as a miscreant and uh, set up in Queenscliff and married a, a nurse who was on the ship behind. And between them, they had 14 children who survived and they lived in a cottage on the beach at Queenscliff. So the Bellarine Peninsula is steeped in family history. And on my mother's side, uh, there's the Camperdown history, so Western District history, Bellarine history. And frankly, uh, um, my father would have beaten me up if I didn't go for Geelong. So I used to go to football with him since a kid. So, <laughs> every game down there. Yeah. Well, you, your family has a connection to real estate and property across Victoria, but you also have a background in that you're a trained, and I think you practiced as an architect for a little while. I think I graduated in. 76 or 77, and then I worked for Magration and Everest Architects in Melbourne. And in the 80s, set up with a, a university, a school university friend, John Main, and we were Main and Bailey architects for, oh, I don't know, 25 years, 30 years or something. Um, and uh, one guy's did a lot of education work, and other guy's, and, and also some urban design work, and another guy's some office work and residential work. So, oh, so you practiced for a pretty substantial period of time then? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I should be able to remember the date when we dissolved our partnership, but uh, um, it's nationally around 2002, 2003. Okay, so along with being a practicing architect, you also were involved in politics and you became the highest. Uh, level bureaucrat or politician in the state, but you were also at one point the opposition spokesperson on planning. So I think you bring an interesting perspective to the conversation in that you have that practitioner perspective in terms of design and an understanding of, of building and developing, but then you also cross over and you bring that political perspective in terms of trying to balance competing views and understanding a system. Before we get to that, how did you um, get involved in politics? Uh, well, I had, uh, I, I mean, I've often said that architects are really well um, trained for a political career, but very few go into political careers. Uh, I guess in my broader family, there's been political involvement in many ways, going back some generations. My uh, great-grandfather was the William Knox. My mother, my mother's side was the first member for Kuyong. And there have been various other members of my broader family that have been involved in politics. So I had a some something of an interest. But as an architect, I saw no ticket, no start on building sites. I didn't like that. That got me involved. 
Uh, I saw uh, um, the education system as important. I was doing a lot of education projects and we were doing strategic planning, project planning out 20, 25 years for some school. And I could see the need for change there and I was also pretty interested in the uh, future of the Franklin River at the time, in the early 80s. Um, so that actually led me to join um, the Liberal Party and uh, sort of friends and I got together and we started talking about how we could improve the party and one thing led to another. I became president of the Liberal, vice president and president of the Liberal Party for five years, uh, president through four elections and then left um, and in 99 joined the state parliament. Yes, and then just before we get to that, you mentioned that architects are well positioned to move into politics. Why is that? I think they've got a good sense of the future and a good, a good sense of realising change and a good sense of um, social perception, which uh, is important, and a good capacity to engage with uh, bureaucracy, if uh, you think about it, because those who come to uh, power find themselves in those situations all the time. And if you can, it's as simple as, can you read the drawing? Do you know what you're looking at? What, what, what does the specification mean? What's the significance of it? How do you communicate? How do you uh, draft submissions? Uh, what's important? What's going to make a difference? What are things going to look like in 10 years' time, but 40, 50 years' time as well? They're all fundamental attributes which lend themselves to civics. Uh, many architects find themselves in local government. Not so many go into state government and I'd be struggling to name those who had a crack at federal government. But, um, there have been a few in, in Victoria. Uh, myself, Justin Madden, who became the planning minister, probably didn't expect to be, but he went in there and suddenly was the planning minister. Andrew McCutcheon, who is an architect on the Labor side, he actually became Attorney General, so that was a bit of a shift for him. Uh, there have been a few, uh, but not so many. I think I'm the only architect who's become Premier. And I was pretty enthusiastic about that combination, um, and I had some fairly uh, grand plans for elevating the profession as well when we got there. I uh, probably get the time would have liked to have seen some of that through, but... Uh, there were certainly some important steps we took in that regard. Yeah, so back to you entering into state parliament, then you became, uh, I think, the opposition spokesperson, amongst other things, on planning. So I was curious around uh, the issues that you saw at the time that you felt really needed to be addressed in the planning system. Well, initially I'd become the shadow minister for uh, tertiary education, which was useful exercise as well and I did that for a while and also then for gaming but I uh, became shadow minister for planning and obviously I had some knowledge and understanding which assisted and I got into that uh, fairly uh, heavily. I did a lot of writing for a lot of journals. Uh, I challenged some of the norms and I was concerned then about uh, planning system, I was concerned about uh, the waste, the duplication, the role of VCAT in particular, uh, and the distance from the system had from uh, ordinary people and the problems it caused for professionals. Uh, and generally the planning system, I 
think um, isn't what it should be. And uh, we did propose some solutions which we were on the cusp of uh, implementing, but uh, when I left, uh, some of those fell over, which I'm still dismayed about. But um, I can say giving great... Well, I can say one of those things was giving greater security and independence to the government architect and supporting that wholeheartedly. We did get on with that. It was better resourcing, better independence, better surety. Uh, and again, after I left, uh, that fell away to some degree. And I'm very disappointed about that. Yes, well, uh, we'll have a chat about the planning system. Um, what, what did you think? Are there, there other aspects of the planning system that you think work well back then and now? Oh, well, uh, the system itself is laid out pretty well these days. I mean, you can sit at home and with a click of a button, you can get to the bottom of any situation within five minutes if you know where to look. It's all there. So that part of it is good. Uh, there is much greater consistency uh, with the schemes. I think most of the problems uh, occur around uh, those who seek to avoid this, the system. And ironically, in the early 90s, um, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, Labor, the Canberra government in 99, introduced Melbourne 2030. And it had a lot of uh, good intentions, but they're also the intentions of those who had done strategic plans in various forms for some time uh, and seen those plans fail. And I don't think Melbourne 2030 overcame uh, some of those problems and the government itself became probably uh, the principal um, recalcitrant when it came it didn't even follow its own strategic planning scheme so when you get that situation going on and you've got vcat to seeming to uh, constantly um, create a distance between uh, local communities and outcomes then you get a, a lack of confidence in the system. And that lends itself just to decay and dispute and uh, disappointment. And I don't think we've advanced as much as we could have in that sense. And certainly, I had set out a what I believe and still believe would be a better way of handling that, but we didn't get to implement. Yes, decay, dispute and disappointment. <laughs> that can be a fair way to sum up the planning system still, I'd have to say. One of, my, one of the words I find most interesting is the word entropy. Uh, and the planning system is uh, certainly a, uh, a cause of a fair degree of entropy in building development and construction. Yeah, well, there's still the, uh, the, the chaotic sense still abounds, Ted, I have to say. Um, I, can't, I should make a, a fundamental observation, which I spent a lot of time talking about uh, in opposition and in government, and I still believe is the case, uh, that um, planners in the planning system have less influence on the outcome than the very high and steadily increasing cost of construction in this country. And our outcomes are dictated more by the high cost of construction than they are by any planners or any planning schemes. And they, um, one is cover for the other, sadly. 
Yeah, I've read, uh, I think you wrote a, a, delivered a speech or a paper about the high cost uh, of doing inner city development, say for a high-rise versus a outer suburban greenfield development where the costs of building a big house are certainly much lower, but then you have the infrastructure issues related to having to live out there, which ends up being actually really quite costly. Well, it, it's a challenge and you need to look at, the outcomes uh, as if you're in the shoes of a young family because that's what we're fundamentally there to do, to provide accommodation for families, to provide accommodation for the future and to ensure that all the infrastructure and the social needs are available. But if you're a young family uh, with a couple of kids either on the way or you have them already and you're looking to make a choice, at the moment you've got a choice. You can choose a high-density apartment, three bedrooms, say, and you might be required to outlay eight hundred, nine hundred, nine hundred and fifty thousand to achieve that. Uh, and it might be, if you're lucky, 70, 80, 90 square metres. But on the other hand, you, the, the, the choice that family has, they can go to a greenfield site and purchase a, uh, uh, a package and get themselves a three-bedroom home, which might be 160, 170, even 180 square metres. And it might be four fifty, five hundred, five fifty thousand dollars $550,000. That's twice the size, twice the size, half the price. So if you're a young family, what choice have you got? And families make that choice and they go to greenfield sites. And in turn, developers make the same choice. They build one and two bedroom apartment blocks. And they might be in a 100, 100 apartment uh, development in the inner city, high density, might be high rise. And it'll advertise as one, two and three bedrooms. But if you look at the uh, um, apartment schedule, there might be two or three three-bedroom apartments in that building, and they'll be very high-priced, out of the reach of most families, and the rest is one and two bedrooms. And the second bedroom in the two bedrooms, if it's not inboard, it's going to be tiny. It's not to put a suitcase or a cat. Uh, the facilities aren't there that should be there. We don't have cross-ventilation. We don't have great air-conditioning systems, and uh, the apartments are small. And we've seen through the pandemic that uh, none of that uh, construction has lent itself to uh, healthy occupation. So I've made the point for years that we are, forgive the language, I don't mean to be disparaging, we build far too much crap. And uh, what we've done is uh, put together developments uh, which I've described as the crap trap because they just don't uh, present as family-friendly. So families are making decisions to go elsewhere and in a metropolitan developments, whether they're on transport routes or transport nodes, they're high density but they're not family friendly and we are creating this family donut in our cities. And it's not just in Melbourne, it's true elsewhere because most of our planning schemes now are based on this premise that there is an even playing field in construction and it's, you, know, you get to make a, 
an equal choice, but it's not equal. High cost of construction mitigates against families. And no one wants to do anything about it because everybody's got a vested interest. Basically, the higher the cost of construction, the more money people make. Um, and it's true in too much of our development, and it's also true in our infrastructure. And no one's looking after the families, no one's looking after the payers. And I think there are ways through it, uh, but at the moment, this has been going for 15 or 20 years at least like this, and we're not getting better developments. Um, as I say, we're building too much crap, and I happen in recent years to be chairing Victoria's cladding task force, and we've seen through that process that not only have we got uh, cladding defective buildings, but we've got uh, uh, defects in high-rise buildings right across this country in areas that shouldn't be the case, whether it's plumbing, raising all sorts of systems. Uh, we've got the most expensive buildings, amongst the most expensive buildings in the world, but we don't have the best buildings in the world, and that's a problem which is forcing families to go where they don't really want to go, but where their financial choices mean they have to go. Yeah, and one of the other challenges that I've found and very common is is the amount of time it gets to t it takes to get through planning and then delivering something to market. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day that to just to bring a, a four unit townhouse site, for example, in a suburban Melbourne location, takes around two years to be able to deliver that to market. If you're taking takes you. You're lucky if you can get planning in six to nine months, more like 12, then you've got to get your perm, uh, your building permit that, and documentation. There's another couple of months, then 10 months to build, a couple more months to get your occupational certificate and titles, and then just, yeah, before you know it, two years. And that's just to build, bring four townhouses to market. Yeah, and that's ridiculous. Uh, but that's a product of the system not attracting trust and confidence. And if you haven't got trust and confidence and surety, then people will challenge it at every opportunity. <coughs> and trust and confidence comes from performance. And I'm very pro-development. I'm an architect, I'm pro-development. But I see it in my local area. I see some terrible, terrible stuff uh, being put to market. And I've made my efforts to have that turned around. And have almost invariably been unsuccessful. And I could walk you through particular examples and that's all pretty boring, but some shocking, shocking proposals. And it shouldn't be that way. If the system is working well, people will have confidence in it. And if you uh, if you can give people a fair choice, then families will be accommodated, accommodated reasonably. But that's not what's happening. So the, the you know, sclerosis in the system gets worse. The outcomes don't get better. People lose more and more trust and confidence. Um, and that's the pity of it all because everybody suffers in that respect. And so at what point do you think the performance doesn't match up to the expectation? Well, you'd like to think that if there's a planning scheme, uh, it'll have some currency and people stick to it and it's clear. And in certainly metropolitan Melbourne, most uh, councils were required after Melbourne 2030 to also have not only Melbourne 2030, which was a global exercise, but they're also required to have a municipal strategic statement, which actually spelled out the local forces and to try and avoid the two forces coming into conflict. 
the MSSs, the Municipal Strategic Statements, were constructed. But they were observed in uh, in the uh, um, in the uh, country in most cases, uh, and that was the source of frustration. And it's just too easy to put together a, a program in a project in an area where you'd expect there to be a fairly significant um, balance of family apartments, family townhouses, and turn it into all one bedders and two bedders. And families disappear, and that's where the disappointment comes. Because, and, and in many ways, I don't blame the developers. They do what they think they can sell easiest and quickest. And I've had this discussion with many developers, including in my local area when I was a member. So, so tell me, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you one and two bedroom only? This is a family area, and here you've got a perfect site, and you can do. Some terrific apartments. And they say, well, we benchmark. We benchmark against other developments. I said, well, that's the lowest common denominator leading. Well, what about lifting your sights? No, they all want a benchmark. And they regard the marketing campaign as uh, the difference. At the end of the day, we're jamming people into some very small apartments with not great accommodation, not great facility. And we're creating social problems which will emerge in time, and I think that's incredibly disappointing because it doesn't have to be that way. If we gave greater weight to the NSS um, and less weight to um, the sometimes um, uh, strange views of VCAT or, or something, then there would be more certainty. And more certainty, then those decision makers would rise or fall on. What their, pro- what their planning proposals were, but that's not what the case is now. No one's responsible for anything under a planning scheme. <laughs> Councils aren't responsible because it's taken off them. VK's not responsible because they refer to the scheme. The minister's not responsible because there's a scheme. No one's actually responsible. And uh, that's to everybody's detriment, in my opinion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I was met saying this the other day with a colleague of mine. That the councils basically have no responsibility. They just some of their decisions make no sense. Some of them aren't even in, aren't even based in the planning scheme. Uh, but there's no accountability. Even if they do that, their decisions are taken out of hand by VCAT. And, and let's face it, uh, many developers will say, "Well, I'll I'll put in a proposal to get myself to VCAT as fast as possible." And that's you know, understandable from a developer's point of view. But it's not the way to build trust and confidence. And uh, what we had initially proposed but didn't get to introduce was to say, well, that's all fine and good, but you don't get to go to VCAT unless you're substantially compliant with the municipal strategic state. And that simply meant that uh, if there's a left-field decision, there's a left-field proposal on the book, then that decision is taken at the local level, not taken at a remote level. And that would have then put responsibility uh, in the hands of those uh, who are answerable to their community, but VCAT's not answerable. At the end of the day, the minister's not answerable. The minister can call anything in, but he probably won't. Panels get promoted. Panels come up with their you know, their endorsement for this and that. It becomes so remote from local community that uh, frustration becomes the norm. And 
sometimes good proposals get knocked off, sometimes lousy proposals get approved. And either way, no one's happy. If, I was, if no one's happy, does that mean the system's working? Ah, uh, no, because it takes time, it costs money, and no one's responsible. You, know, you can't want a finger to I can walk down the street and I can, you know, I can show it is a really shocking development. Who was responsible for that? And you can't let it say. Is there a difference in perspective that you take into government or once you get into government than you do in opposition from a planning perspective? Oh, no, and I was very mindful of that. And so what we took into government and in planning policies... Uh, we had stood by through two elections and we went, we got on with the uh, government architect um, changes and they, they were welcome. And we, out of that came the design review panels, which I think were very uh, responsive and effective and used for, uh, still being used. Unfortunately, um, the resources aren't quite there for the architect. And I wanted the government architect to be outspoken. Uh, most government architects around the country are very shy because they feel they owe allegiance to their government. I don't think that should be the case at all. And we wanted to create government architects with independence. And on planning changes, we got on with some uh, minor changes and we made uh, more responsiveness. We didn't get to change that line of responsibility like I hope we would. But if you're a developer, you think, ah, oh, I just don't want to have any local community involvement at all. That's a preference. That's crazy. If you're going to promote a development, sell a development and become part of a community, you need that local buy-in. And it's foolish not to go there because you just create enemies and what's the upshot? So um, I was... I would have relished the opportunity to be the planning minister myself, but um, you know, premier and minister for the arts, uh, then I could be uh, planning minister as well. So it's a portfolio of absolute fascination to me. And if you look at the legislative position, the planning minister has incredible authority and power, uh, but they're actually reluctant to use it. And if you know what you're doing, it could be very, uh, very engaging. So if you had the magic stick right now and you were the planning minister, what one thing would you change? Uh, well, I'd probably put those municipal strategic statements up there and limit trips to VCAT and put all the responsibility and, uh, for left-field proposals back at council level and uh, you'd create predictable. But I would also, uh, if I was planning minister, uh, I wouldn't be shy about uh, looking at a proposal and, and identifying it whether it's a good one or, or not, and you're saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to impose that on the community. Uh, do better. Uh, but uh, to, be, to be fair, most planning ministers aren't even that struggle to read a drawing, frankly, and they can take advice. But uh, uh, if you can't spot the flaws in the project within the first couple of minutes, uh, you're going to be reluctant to do it. So... But equally, I'd be, I'd be saying to people, that is a, a sensational proposition. Let's get on with it. Yeah, and there seems to be this tension as well between the role of councillors and the role of council 
offices and sometimes, I mean, I've had experience where councils are asking for things way over and above what's in the planning scheme beyond what's reasonable, but you, in order to get their support, you have to concede. Uh, yeah, well, councillors aren't necessarily uh, well equipped themselves other than having a handle on the local community feel because they're no, no better reading drawings, reading outcomes, understanding uh, the implications of a, of a particular envelope. Uh, they see community activity, they see something that's large or different and they'll be all be nervous. Um, and so uh, small things become important in the game of the system. You know, okay, give me 10 little things and I'll, I'll give up one big thing. And it's just... It's, Kind of childish negotiation to disguise this uh, planning process, which uh, I always find particularly disappointing. But, you know, people of goodwill with good understanding can ensure good projects get the go ahead, and people who do good projects they should be getting the, the five star award from the local council and from the local community, and they should be recognised and awarded as such, so that every time they come coming to uh, uh, permit application. Yep, these are the these are the five star guys. We understand it. We have faith in them. Yeah, just it's a real challenge getting a permit these days. It's a just feels like a it's getting more and more difficult, and with more and more reports and slow is not good for anybody in my view. And the cottage industries that have sprung up around planning permits are crazy. All the pre-planning work that has to go and everybody gets paid but nobody's responsible. And all of that contributes to this high cost of construction in this country. Start again. Highest cost cost buildings in the world but not the best buildings in the world. Something like 30 to 40% of that end cost consists of fees, taxes and charges levied by governments and other agencies along the way. If you look at why we have high cost of construction, we, the industry is actually not very competitive. And people say, oh, you're kidding me. We we're constantly in constant. No, everybody competes on the same inputs. Uh, we have monopoly supplies or effective monopoly supplies in some areas. We don't have much international competition. Uh, a, there is a, a very heavy um, industrial overlay. Uh, and the procurement practices for government are almost childish. I mean, governments announce projects and the first thing they do is announce the price and they have no idea what the price is going to be. And the industry says, well, that's, be- that's become our uh, bottom line benchmark and now we work up from there. And so everybody assumes that when the government announces it's going to cost $100 million, that it'll probably cost 200 The industry knows that. Everybody knows it. It's just the worst procurement practice you can possibly advance, but that's what somehow or other we train the media to demand what's the final price before we even know what the project is. So you add it all up, in this country, there is no focus on construction cost. And this is the little tester for you, just who cares? In the building development process, who is there? Who cares what it costs? In the construction industry, who cares what it costs? 
building infrastructure, who cares what it costs? The only people who ever care are the payers. And in infrastructure, who are the payers? They're the, the water users, the road users, the uh, power users, and they get the bill down the track. Nobody else is paying the bill. And no one's looking after their interests. In the, in, the, in the domestic system, the residential system, the office system, who cares? Whatever it costs becomes the benchmark. And what we get uh, to compensate if the prices get high, two ingredients which uh, uh, the industry turns to to better satisfy the market, size and quality. Quality comes down and the size comes down. And the classic for me was before I left, I had somebody come to me in my office in Hawthorne and say, well, here's a, I just want to show you this proposal, high-rise residential in North Melbourne. There's going to be a 1,000 apartments and every one of them was 16 square metres. And it was a golden tower with magnificent perspectives in colour and it was gleaming in the sunset. But every apartment 16 square metres. And you think, okay. They got their permit, I think, but uh, actually didn't proceed for other reasons. But um, that's the end point where size and quality no longer matter. It's just a marketing campaign. And that's, for me, a direct function of not having sorted out why everything's so expensive. And we don't sort it out because actually no one cares. I hadn't actually ever considered that before. I think you're, you're spot on. <laughs> Certainly councils don't with the things they keep flicking back over onto the developer to take care of, infrastructure uh, fees and other civil works. It just gets pushed onto the developer. It was a classic one, and I don't mean to single it out, but it's because it's sort of there. And, uh, we, we uh, in our collective wisdom, we have a desal plant down at One Thirty, and it's on a particular model and funding arrangement, which is questionable, but it's there. So let's just put aside all of those uh, issues about the politics of desal and whether it worked and whether it has um, been a useful acquisition uh, but it was for in its day the most expensive desal plant anywhere in the world and uh, it's barely been used but that's another point so i asked myself okay well who in that whole process had carriage of ensuring it wasn't the most expensive plant in the world it didn't worry the builders, it didn't worry the uh, finances, it didn't worry the banks, it didn't worry the planners, it didn't worry the government because it was off the books. You could go through every single uh, entity involved in the development of that project and none of them had carriage of the interests of the payers. And the payers were the water users of the future. And... No one had line of responsibility for that. So whatever it cost, didn't matter. The more it cost, the more, more money people made. And there were, uh, there were wages on site there, uh, which I'm going to because it sounds like fingering people, but they were staggering. 
uh, Rogers and myself there, and every consultancy under the book. Uh, it was at the same disposition. They didn't care what it cost. We've got our diesel plant, which we hardly ever used, if ever. And what did that project do? It became the benchmark costs for all the future infrastructure projects. And you think, oh my God, how do you stop this? So what's the outcome of all this? Um, uh, I refer to what I call the revolution of the payers. Because I think the payers are getting jack of all of this. They haven't quite put two and two together yet. They've certainly started to rail at the cost of gas and electricity and tolls and, and rates and fees and charges and all these things that uh, the payers get hit with, but they can't actually put their finger on why it's so expensive. And we're all just encouraged to think, well, that's just what the cost is. And no one's actually checking down the challenge. Okay, well, here's the objective. We want to halve the cost of this. What are you going to do? No, there is no mission like that. So beware the payers. Yeah, I know, I know that frustration as well from a development perspective where you're looking at your feasibility and you're looking at all these line items and you think, God, they all add up. So then you go on the hunt to try and find some savings somewhere and you you might find that saving of whatever it might be and then <laughs> then you get hit by some new charge that comes on. You have to laugh on, on some of the big projects and the, and, the, and the consortia come together and they go to tender and tender process is probably still the best process in my view. Um, but they go to tender and uh, they're all tendering on the same inputs. They're all using similar suppliers, similar contractors down at the lower level. And to win a job, what are they doing to win a job? Well, they're gaming the system. They're saying, well, I reckon I can game the variations better than the bloke down the road. And I'll punt on being able to game the variations. I'll be punting on uh, uh, cutting a fine line here or a fine line there. Um, and I'm going to have a bit more availability than the bike down the road uh, in six months' time. And the one thing that's never contested is the core cost. It's everything else on the edges. Um, that's usually lends itself to gaining the quality as well, which is unfortunate. And we've, we've seen that in the cladding inquiry and what a tragic and, and the classic story that was at the Grenfell Tower, whereas to save money, they changed the cladding system to a defective system. Yeah, I look at that and go, how, how frustrating is that when, as you say, you have really high building costs and yet you end up with a building that is defective in, in a serious way. And it's, we've seen it in Sydney and some of the towers in Sydney and I know there's more to come probably in Victoria in that respect. But... Um, the industry has created uh, the role of value manager on site. And it's the value manager's job to game the system. Uh, and, okay, I can understand why they're there. But it doesn't lend itself to outcomes of trust and confidence again. 
Yeah, as a buyer, you buy, you're buying into one of those apartments in good faith and then you end up with a lemon and you're looking around going, I didn't do anything wrong and, and they didn't and they're just stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember old building regulations and old training schemes where uh, you had to have uh, natural ventilation, cross-ventilation was an asset and... Uh, you had to have open space um, to certain uh, levels, and, um, and minimum minimums were were frowned upon rather than became the benchmarks. But if you're at six foot seven, you walk into an apartment these days, um, you got to watch your head so you don't get hit by the ceiling fan. That's the only ventilation going around. <laughs> Uh, that's you for listeners out there who don't know that uh, Ted's quite tall. Starting to shrink, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, tell me, what's what's one thing or something that you miss about politics? Uh, I I uh, relished being there in the middle. Uh, I relished being able to uh, challenge uh, on the detail. So I relished all of that. And I don't begrudge anybody else in government having to deal with some of the decision making because if you're not comfortable in you know, a development project, if you're not comfortable reading plans and drawings and scale and all that sort of thing, it'll be hard. So, your question do I miss? Yeah, I miss that, but I'd miss all the who have it goes with it. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself when you were Premier, Ted? Um, I learnt that it's smart not to, um, that I'd done the right thing by not being a drinker. <laughs> I'd done the right thing by not being a smoker. And I've done the right thing by being uh, uh, constantly um, fit or trying to be fit. Uh, and I think it's uh, important to get a sense of your own capacity and confidence. And um, I'm always I'm always open to the proposition that I might be wrong, uh, and I always kind of start with that proposition. Uh, but I'm also open to the proposition. Well, hang on, I may well be right. Let's test it. And speaking of uh, staying healthy, I, I understand you are an iceberg swimmer. You like the cold water. Is that still the case? You're still swimming. I'm, I'm a Brighton iceberger, and I've uh, been doing that for 20 years. Swim all year round, just with a pair of speedos on. Nothing like a couple of k's in nine degree water in the middle of uh, July in a pair of speedos. So, so to people, very difficult to focus on anything else other than what your immediate surrounds are and surviving. That's a pretty healthy thing to do. All right, let's switch gears now, Ted, if we can. Just I'd like to do a couple of quick fire-style Q&A questions, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, yep, sure. sure. All right. True or false? Are you the chieftain of the Victorian Highland Pipe Band Association? Uh, da, 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 da. Yes, I am. All right, very good. Uh, another true or false question. You wanted to uh, develop your own line of speedos. Cold water swimming. 
Um, ooh, I'm not sure where you've got that one from, but it's entirely possible we might have discussed that with somebody along the way who might have leaked it on me, but uh, I'm, we're still wearing Speedos, most of us. And, um, you need to come up with some special uh, inbuilt heating unit, I suspect. Yeah, there's no way around it. When the water's under 10 degrees, uh, you're conscious of life expectancy. And uh, when you, by the time you get to a shower, your whole body is tomato red. It's torture. All right, so we'll take that as a true then. It's the swimmer's equivalent of the planning scheme. It's self-inflicted torture. Yeah. Uh, Favourite architect? Uh, in contemporary terms, you choose. Uh, well, my favourite building is um, the old Manchester Unity, uh, and uh, Mark's Bar and all that lot, and that's my favourite Melbourne building. Contemporary architects, um, I'll, I'll stay away from the Melbourne ones just because I'll, I'll get in trouble if I do that. But, uh, I follow fairly carefully um, Tom Bloxham and Urban Splash, who was out at Melbourne University a few years ago. And uh, really interesting medium density housing, social housing they do in the world. I was going to ask in you the about the world. I was going to ask you about your favourite public building, but you've answered that. Uh, what about your least favoured public building? Ah, uh, well. <laughs> Probably my least favourite building is um, between the MCG and the Tennis Centre. It's the offices of Tennis Australia and the Australian Open. And to this day, I'm not sure how it got there. Oh, that big building next to the train line or the mid-rise yeah. building? Yeah. Yeah, mm. okay. Yeah, mm. <laughs> it does stick out a bit. <laughs> Okay, if you could have dinner with any person, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Um, wow, there's a good question. Uh, alive or dead? Uh, let's go with the alives. Uh, right now I'd probably say, hey, it's just one sitting down with Tim Minchin. Um, fabulous lyricist, got a lovely touch, um, good communicator. Might not feel the same way about me, but uh, he's a super impressive individual. And on the on the dead, oh, Jim uh, Kelly, Donald O'Connor, yeah, something like that. And who are they? Yep. Uh, dancers, singers, and of course, uh, no, uh, you had to go past Elvis, wouldn't it? <laughs> Well, we know where your interests lie now, somewhere in the musical realm. Some of it, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Okay. Is it, what's a question you wished you'd been asked in public life but you never were? <laughs> um, well, uh, I'll give you another little tease. The night I stepped down as being Premier, I did a press conference that evening. And uh, we finished that press conference and I walked away with my media advisor. I said to my media advisor, you know what? Nobody asked me why. So there you go. How about that? <laughs> uh, do you, would you like the opportunity now to answer that? Do you want me to ask you? 
no, 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 no. It's, uh, they should have asked me at the time. And uh, eventually I'll have something to say about that. Too. Okay. Well, we'll keep that one on tender hooks. All right, let's um, head down the finishing straight now. Ted, I'm very grateful to you for, for your time so far. But what's your one tip for developers out there that might be looking to take their business to the next level? Raise your sights. Don't benchmark. Raise your sights. Quality, quality, quality. And um, it goes without saying, if you're going to do that, keep your community on board. Well, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch, what's uh, what's the best platform or the best way? Where should they go looking? Oh, the best way is I've got uh, an office in the old Treasury building uh, with other former premiers um, and the work out of there. But uh, uh, probably the best way is uh, through email, former premier46 at gmail.com. I think you're active on Twitter as well, aren't you? Uh, active on Twitter, yeah. You can direct message me on Twitter. Not that many people do, but I'm just doing my own name on Twitter. And... Uh, uh, I enjoy the engagement on Twitter, particularly with uh, things that are happening in architecture, planning, development in the UK and in Ireland in particular, because there's a lot of common ground we share, and a lot of issues are common. And there's some on there. Fantastic. And one last question. Have you been doing something different or new or unusual in the last couple of weeks and months, apart from being stuck at home? Is there anything you've been doing differently or you could share? Uh, we're, well, we're certainly spending more time at home um, and uh, I'm sure it looks like that that's going to go on for a fair while. Yet. Uh, it's interesting to contemplate how we emerge from this. I think there are probably three phases. Um, we look at our look broadly. Some of our key strengths have been heavily eroded in the events, hospitality, sports, culture, immigration, international education. Uh, a variety of our strengths have really been smacked. Um, and that's going to change the world's interest in us. It's going to change Australia's interest in us. So three phases, I think we now have to recover our own local economies first. And that may take one or two years. And then I think we're going to recover our position in Australia, which might take three or five years, and then recover our position uh, internationally, and that might take longer still. Uh, and you know, the notion of just jumping on a plane and flying here or there will be problematic for some time. And if you look at the other way around, you know, what's the world's interest in us? Do they need us, or do we need the world more than them? My own view is we're going to have to reach out big time, particularly to India and to Southeast Asia. Uh, and the sooner we do that, the better. Uh, but it's going to be harder to persuade you know, the world to give us the benefit of the doubt where they're looking to invest. And that's going to require a pretty dedicated effort to restore ourselves. And in that respect, going back to where we started, if we think we can still be the percent of the highest construction cost in the world and attract international attention as well, I think we're kidding ourselves. Well, one thing it has certainly shone a light on is the importance of good design and if everyone's spending all this time inside and in their homes, it's going to really magnify whether they like the space they're in. Yep, yep, and I think we'll hopefully we'll be a bit more judgmental about the product that's on offer and the 
I hope that um, developers see their way through that. Uh, we may find that in the short term uh, that it's going to be a bit harder to get projects up financially. Uh, there will be less disposable income, presumably. Uh, I imagine there will be less demand for housing with this uh, immigration. So there will be likely uh, more sellers, fewer buyers, um, lower prices. Uh, for existing product um, and with existing product, new product will have to be better and cheaper and that will hopefully force some good outcomes that certainly can't be worse than cheaper. That would be a mistake. Uh, but uh, I think we have to review that balance of the planning system so that the uh, community gets a better understanding of what they're getting into. But it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, well, let's hope we can get back to focusing on all those things in the coming months and years, which we're going to need to do to get this place back on track. Good on you, Josh. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Ted. It's been awesome having you on the Property Developer Podcast. Really appreciate your insights on what it's like to run government, shape policy, and also your thoughts on architecture and how design influences people uh, in their lives. So really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. All right. Thanks, Justin. Cheers. Okay, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I found it fascinating to hear some of Ted's thoughts on how the planning process is letting many people down, including developers, and what can be done to fix it. Sadly, I think many governments are too afraid of upsetting people to make any meaningful changes to the system. Anyway, here are three things I took away from the discussion. One, raise your sights. Ted's key piece of advice for property developers looking to take their business to the next level is to raise their sights. So how can you improve your current or next project? Can you up the quality of the design? Improve communal spaces? Sharpen the finish? There's so many little things that you can look at to improve your overall project. Two, keep your local community on board. For some people, community engagement can be a challenge, and I think that relates to people saying no or rejecting your proposal. As Ted says, these people are often your potential buyers and may actually have some good ideas on how aspects of the project could be improved. Now, I've certainly experienced anger and frustration from locals on new projects, so I understand how challenging it can be at times. But I think listening and being open to community feedback is a good skill to have. 3. Understand your local market This was an interesting point that Ted made about delivering product that the local market needs or wants versus what you can build based on the planning scheme in the area. I think there will always be some tension between residents who live in an area in a certain type of dwelling, say larger blocks with single houses on them, and developers who may want to add a different type of stock in the area and maybe attract a slightly different group into that area. I think listening to the concerns of locals and genuinely seeing what can be done to alleviate those concerns is a good first step to overcoming resistance. And there will always be a group of people who simply don't want any change at all. It all comes back to being certain about what you are offering is in demand for the area. Alright, if you enjoyed that chat with Ted Bellio, you might like to go back and listen to episode 40 where I spoke with planning expert David Crowder about how you can give yourself the very best chance of obtaining a good planning outcome. David had this piece of advice for submitting the best initial application that you can. I would always say that you're better off having a complete planning application and waiting that extra one or two weeks to get everything together and lodged as a complete application. I think it goes to your credibility, but it also assists the planner who 
remembering they've got 30 other files to pile through. If everything's there, instead of things coming in bit by bit, it makes their job a bit easier as well. There's a lot of gold in that chat, so be sure to revisit episode 40 with David Crowder. Okay, don't forget to email me if you want to learn more about the Property Developing Mentoring Program. Email justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and I'll send you some further info. You can always find me on Insta and Facebook for my latest project updates, videos and other fun stuff. Just search for Property Developer Podcast. And feel free to drop a comment on iTunes if you are enjoying a show. So, until next time, may all your planning applications be speedy and positive. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.